We are continuing Pirkei Avos, Chapter 2, Mishnah 1. The first statement in the Mishnah, which we discussed <coughs> a couple of weeks ago, is what is the straight path that a man should choose, one that is a credit to himself, it beautifies himself, and that other people also find it beautiful, so it earns him the esteem of his fellow man. Now, this is all a statement by Rabbi, Rabbi Huda Hanasi, and we are continuing now with his second statement, which is a person should be zahir, careful of a mitzvah kala, what seems to be a lighter mitzvah, kivachamura, just as he is careful in performing a heavier mitzvah. Because you don't know the reward given for the commandments. And so it seems that this is a general exhortation for a person to take all commandments seriously. The reason being because we don't know what is actually a more reward-worthy mitzvah than another, right? So even if in our eyes one appears to be uh, easier or maybe not as serious and therefore maybe not as worthy of uh, attention, alacrity, uh, approach of, you know, let's call it vigorousness or vigilance, no, treat them all the same. Now, before we move on to the third statement, this needs a lot of explanation. First of all, there are those that say that this applies specifically to positive commandments, because when it comes to negative commandments, we do have a barometer, and it's called the severity of the punishment for violating the commandment. And we have some negative commandments that are capital crimes, some that are liable to lashes, and some that bring an offering, and some that don't seem to necessarily have even that as a punishment, but therefore, nonetheless, they are negative, and the ones that have no punishment, for example, would be perhaps less severe than the ones that have more of a punishment. Now, the truth is that uh, I'm not such a fan of that, um, but we have very early commentaries that say that. Rav, which is Rabbi Ovadia Bartunura, and Rambam Maimonides seem to say that this is basically an injunction regarding positive commandments. So that's something to keep in mind. It's very hard to get to the depth of this Mishnah um, in you know, my mind. Um, Rabbi Phil is asking, why would anyone take negative commandments any which way? Right? Uh, I think what Rabbi Phil is asking is, we have to not do anything wrong. Uh, where's the selection process when it comes to negative commandments? <coughs> and and uh, you're right uh, about that, Rabbi Field, but on the other hand, that doesn't mean that people don't make that uh, calculus, right? There, there are people who will say, uh, listen, uh, eating pig is less of a severity than eating chametz and Pesach, and it's more geschmack. I can handle the not eating chametz and Pesach, but maybe I can't handle the the, you know, they're not eating a cheeseburger or a pig or something like that. I'm not advocating for that, God forbid. I, I'm, I am just saying that it might be human nature. But uh, but you're making a point that perhaps Mishnah would simply not be referring to that, not only because of the difference in punishment, but simply because that whole subject should be a non-starter, which is a, definitely a good point. So nonetheless, uh, it seems that Rav and Rambam are saying different reasons. They're saying... Listen, when it comes to negative commandments, there's a sort of built-in barometer. But when it comes to the positive commandments, we, we don't know anything. 
Now, the um, Ramban points out that there's a an aspect to positive commandments that is unrelated seemingly to reward. So for example, we have many commandments that talk about remembering Egypt. And in order to keep a person focused on the fact that Hashem is in control of events should he choose to be in direct control, but no, no matter what, he's ultimately uh, the authority over everything. There's a big benefit aside from reward specifically for remembering what Hashem did in Egypt is that it keeps our brains uh, functioning properly and correctly. So Nachmanides is pointing out seemingly that in addition to the positive reward that let's say comes later for a positive commandment, there's just the natural consequences of the positive commandments that are also extremely important unrelated to reward. Now, Truthfully, to me, that feels like a question, because what the Mishnah should really say is, hey, keep the positive commandments, because aside from whatever reward is given, regardless of whether we know it or not, we do it for the positive effects <clears throat> that it has in our lives. Another really good one, uh, I think, is you know to recognize the good <coughs> of Hashem or other people, be makir tov, we call it, right, to recognize the good. In addition to, hey, that's the menshlicha way to be, it also helps a person's state of mind to be in a state of appreciation. And so we, we really need a better understanding, and I'm not, unfortunately, equipped at this point to understand this Mishnah in anywhere near the way that satisfies me and, and therefore cannot convey it to you because I, I don't understand it well myself. But I do want to say, in a sort of conclusion of this second statement of the Mishnah, that perhaps what the Mishnah is really saying is that mitzvos have a completely different quality to them than reward. Nachmanides is mentioning one part. And I think a different way that I would put it is that a mitzvah is a way to fulfill an agency of Hashem. So if we had a prophet come to us and say, hey, today I want you to do A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. So we would be very clear on the fact that this is what I'm supposed to do today. Because, hey, he came to me today, he's a prophet, and obviously it's important that I do these things today. But we fall into a false sense of the routine, and we think that, hey, look, God wants me to do all these things. I have to do them yesterday, I have to do them today, I will have to do them tomorrow, and it's all sort of the same. But that's a big mistake. The way that we should really be looking at it is that today, Hashem is coming to us and saying, this is what I want you to do today. So we should understand that it's fulfilling right now a purpose in our lives in terms of fulfilling a mission. And so therefore, <clears throat> therefore, I am saying that what the mission is really saying is that we can't know the true purpose of mitzvot, and that is why the reward is unclear. Uh, Rabbi Chiel is pointing out that some mitzvahs have a reward stated, but even there, the, the reward is not crystal clear. We have this idea of lengthening of days. We don't even know exactly what that means. <coughs> and for sure, that doesn't explain to us exactly what's happening in the world to come. You know, so 
what I'm trying to say as a possible beginning explanation to this second statement of the Mishnah is that when the Mishnah says, because you don't know the reward of the mitzvahs, what it's really saying is we're not supposed to be paying attention to the reward component of a mitzvah. What we're supposed to be paying attention to is the fact that the mitzvah itself serves a purpose. And as such, it's important. So when we think about our day, let's say unrelated to mitzvahs, it's important to brush our teeth. It's important to eat. It's important to do physical hygiene of other uh, sorts. It's important to, you know, have, uh, you know, various um, ways that we take care of our relationships. Those are important elements of our life unrelated to, oh, I'm a good person if I do them. Oh, I get credit somewhere if I do them. No, they're just inherently important. It's part of my job. It's part of my mission. And so I'm suggesting that perhaps that's a way to understand the second statement. And even Nachmanides who's saying that, you know, remembering Hashem or remembering Egypt in various ways is inherently important, unrelated to whatever reward exists in the future for having followed God's command. So I, I think perhaps that's um, something good to keep in mind. And especially when you think of it as a directive for you to do today, not, oh, I have all these obligations. I hope I get around to them. That would be like saying, oh, like, you know, I have this obligation to brush my teeth. You know, maybe I'll get around to it. Maybe I won't. You know, it helps you. So, of course, do it. And so many other activities of our life. Okay. Now let's go to the third statement of the Mishnah, if that's okay, unless anybody wants to jump in here. We'll go to the third statement. Now, the third statement says, A person should always calculate the loss or the cost of a mitzvah corresponding to its reward or to its benefit. And the uh, benefit, or I should say the, you know, kind of pleasure, the reward of a sin, we don't mean the godly reward for a sin. We mean the kind of pleasure or hope, hopeful benefit that a person might be thinking by doing a sin corresponding to the cost of the sin. So very simply put, that means when we think about a mitzvah, very often we feel challenged. Oh, really? I have to do this, or it's going to take this amount of time, or you know, it's going to cost this amount of money. It's true. It does have a cost. But the long-term benefit of it, especially I think now with our explanation, it might be a reason for these two statements to flow into each other. We're not talking about, oh, let me think about all the wonderful reward I'm going to get for this mitzvah in the future. We have no idea what that looks like. In fact, there's an explicit sentence in scripture that says nobody, no I, E-Y-E, has seen the hidden reward of the righteous for the future, except for you, God. So how can we think about that? The Mishnah is saying, think about the reward of the mitzvah. We have no idea. We don't know what the currency is. We don't know what it's like. Although somebody told me this morning that they kind of picture all of Haba having their favorite people in the room at the same time, which is a nice way to think of it. Um, but the truth is we have no idea what, what it feels like, what it looks like. What, so how can we be thinking about it? And so therefore, I think a better way to think about it is the, the, the short-term immediate benefit that a person gets by doing the mitzvah is something incredible compared to the effort that it takes to do it. So, for example, going to a shiva house, which Rabbi Chil and I did, to, happens to be this past week uh, together when he was here for a few days in Miami. 
okay, listen, it takes you 20 minutes or 15 minutes or half an hour or 40 minutes. But at the end of the day, you have the benefit of showing caring for somebody that you love or, you know, think highly of. You have the benefit of reminding yourself of the brevity of life. And you go home, hopefully, with a little bit, you know, renewed attention to what's important. Uh, you have the benefit of being part of a community of people that care for each other. And, you know, God willing, people will care about you in your time of need, hopefully not for a shiva, but whatever it is, right? There's a lot of immediate benefits. And what does it take? I mean, relatively immediate, you know, 40 minutes of my time. Say a few nice words to someone. Be in the room where other people are being caring. So I think that the, the Mishnah is being very strategic here by pointing out that, look, you can't really think about the reward of a mitzvah. That's not why you're doing it. It's a mission today to do it. And then this next statement says, plus it has real applicable short-term benefits. <clears throat> Somebody, a friend of mine was asked recently, he had to do an interview that went out in front of thousands of people. And one of the things that, that they asked him is, what's the best advice you've ever received? And he said, I got it from my father. My father told me, marry young, start a family when you're young. And it's the advice that I think was the best for me. And I'm so happy I took his advice because today he's in his mid forties. He has a bunch of children. He has a thriving career and he's young enough to enjoy his family. And he's stable enough for all these years, right? He settled down and he built a tremendous career and a tremendous family, right? That's a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah to get married. And the rabbis even talk about doing it, the 18, 20, 22, 24, right? The rabbis talk about different ages to do it. That's an example of the benefit of a mitzvah. And then, of course, the converse is the pleasure that a person gets for a few seconds, a few minutes, whatever the temporary pleasure is, uh, stealing money or an illicit relationship or an unkosher food versus the long-term damage of that which it throws the whole relationship with Hashem into question. The person has a tremendous <coughs> sense of guilt, right? They don't actually necessarily work on their own discipline or their own ability to earn money, right? It's damaging, long-term damaging. So I think that's a, a very good way to understand this aspect of the Mishnah. And then let's go to um, the, the last part of the Mishnah, unless anybody wants to jump in over there. Yes, Joseph. And the, the last two uh, things that came to my mind uh, as far as the benefits is concerned, it's not so much for the individual, but for the community and strengthening the relationship between the people. Because if more people keep the mitzvah and they are aware of it, they, they create like a... A, co a collective awareness of it, so the community is stronger and the mission can be uh, accomplished easier. Yeah, so I agree with you. Um, and it's one of the beautiful things about uh, especially Orthodox Judaism, but even other branches of Judaism that have built community, Orthodox Judaism community tends to be very, very strong because uh, we have to live in proximity to one another for Shabbos and and, thing, and plus other reasons. Um, you're right. You know, have, being part of a community is a, is a tremendous comfort uh, to people at, 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 at very um, trying times. 
and yeah, there's a there's huge benefit in being part of the community. No, no question. Anybody else or anything else? Okay, let's go on to the next. This is the last uh, statement in the mission, but it really uh, comes in different parts. And there's even a question of how to break down the different parts, but let's read it. Look at three things. And you will not come to the hands of sin, meaning hopefully it means you don't approach the category of sin and don't struggle with it so much. Uh, I think that's probably a good way to um, interpret the hands of sin rather than don't come to sin, right? The hands of sin means, you know, to be grappling, perhaps. So number one, know what is above you. And they and there and and now there are three things that that are above you. This is one way to understand that I in roa and I e y e that sees, referring to Hashem's constant attention to what we do. The oz and shomaas and an attentive ear, also part of Hashem's uh, attention to what we do. And that all of your actions are written in a book. Now. There's a lot to, to unpack here, um, and maybe we should even come back to it again next week, uh, depending on you know how we think about it and what we want to do. You know, it would just be simple to say, know that Hashem is watching you. You know, like doesn't that mean everything? Hashem is watching you. We think it means He's watching, but you know, it's like it's like our smartphones. You know, you could have the video but no audio, like. Doesn't doesn't really doesn't really seem to make sense to to separate Hashem's awareness into these human components of eye and ear, and then even uh, writing down your actions. And perhaps that's even another way to say it: know that everything you do is being written down. Right? That's also a shorter way of saying everything. Um, so I think that that needs a lot of explanation. So I, I would ask everybody to think about that question. I'm not uh, clear on an answer to that question. And then let me just share some of the commentaries. Uh, we have the um, uh, another opinion on what does it mean to the hands of sin. It, the, so in Hebrew, sometimes a hand is a way of saying a handle. Uh, so it comes up in, in different halachic situations in, in, in terms of understanding uh, different uh, laws, such as vows and things like that. You have the vow itself, you have a handle to a vow. In English, we also say a handle as a way of saying uh, a name. It's like a shortened way. So you kind of grasp a whole thing by its handle. And so according to this opinion, the idea of the handle of a sin is that if you if you get involved with a small part, you get a grasp on the whole part. And so an example when it comes to sin would be a person would never dream, let's say, of going into their friend's house and taking their money. But uh, they might very easily borrow their things without asking for permission, which the rabbis actually say is stealing. Right. So you would say a handle of sin is, you know, stealing uh, a little bit of, of property. Uh, but the way that you steal a little bit of property is to borrow something with the intention to return it, but you don't have permission. That's actually considered to be um, guilty of sinning. There's even a story in the Talmud where a sin uh, a thief was identified by virtue of his using a towel without permission. And then it was identified that he was a thief of other items. Right. So, so the point is that could be like the handle of a sin. 
And so the, the, the knowing these three things is supposed to help us define the entry point of, of sin as opposed to just like, you know, like a bigger sin, which is more clear. So that's another explanation of the hand of sin as opposed to what I was saying is, you know, the throes or the grappling of the sin. Now, there's an interesting Mi'iri that I want to share that they bring over here on the next statement. The phrase in Hebrew is know that which is above you. And the Mi'iri sort of does a, a homiletic interpretation of says know that that which is above is from you. And so what that means is that Hashem deals with you the way that you deal with others. So know that what's above you, meaning Hashem, and the way Hashem treats you is based on how you behave. So what you're getting is from you. That's uh, that's his homiletic interpretation of right? So if a person is kind to his fellows, then Hashem likewise acts graciously towards him. In fact, the, the Talmud even talks about an incredible example of this in, in uh, Tractate Megillah, that if we give our friends the benefit of the doubt, God judges us according to the benefit of the doubt also. This is fascinating. Even though God really knows what we're thinking and what we're doing, if there's two ways to look at what we did, and one way is to see it only positively, and the other one is to say, well, you know, maybe, you know, he's really doing it for selfish reasons. If we give other people the benefit of the doubt, then God will say, I'm not going to go into your brain and know that you're actually doing it for a selfish reason. I'm going to treat you like you did it for an unselfish reason. Pretty fascinating. So this is an idea of the way that we're treated, we get treated uh, from Hashem. Um, now it gets a little more complicated how to explain the next part of the Mishnah according to the Me'iri. I'll let you read um, you know, the commentary in that. And then the, the point where the Mishnah says and all of your actions are written in a book, there's a teaching from, from the Chassid Yavitz that's beautiful. He says, it's not necessarily the way that we think of it, which is how other people explain it, that there's a book, all of our actions are written, like we think about in the high holidays, right? Everything, like there's a ledger with everything written down. The Chassid Yavitz explains that the book that is recording everything is your soul. And so everything that you do either adds luster or blemishes, so to speak, to your soul. And so therefore the, the record of a person's activities are imprinted on their soul. And therefore you should know that what you do is having a tremendous long-term effect because it's actually expressed in who you become. And that's a visible thing, obviously, to Hashem. And therefore, it'll be always easy to see uh, what a person's actions were simply by uh, the way that, uh, you know, Hashem understands or looks at, so to speak, their soul. So I think there's really a lot more to discuss in this mission. To me, this was a hard mission to really grasp well. Um, I hope to think about it more and maybe come back with some more next week. And if not, we will go to mission number two. Any questions or comments here? Yes. Anybody here? Yes, I mean. I was just going to say that the last portion, obviously, we'll discuss it more. But, you know, now in our days, I guess it's even easier 
probably to understand than that in the past, right? With all the technology, like you can you can have if you can imagine you can have a drone above you recording video, recording audio, like seeing everything. And it's basically that type of concept, right? Everything you do is being watched, being recorded, being you're gonna to have to account for it. True. Absolutely true. Yeah, we got we got the benefit of of, of knowing that such a you know a thing is almost humanly possible. Uh, obviously, all the more so from Hashem. Yeah, right. very good point. Okay, so I'm gonna hit stop here and go to the Torah.